Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Deeper Daily Podcast for the 30th day of November. I'm Paul White. Last day of the month is always the essay edition. You can find a print version of the essay edition at paulwhiteministries.com. And these go all the way back uh, several years that you can reread the essays we've been writing and posting on a variety of topics. As is uh, the custom of this past year, we are picking the essay up wherever we are through our journey. We did the Gospel of Mark, and now the last couple of months, the Gospel of Luke. And so we arrive for this month's essay edition in Luke chapter 4. And here it is for November 2023, the DDP essay edition. One of my favorite Jesus stories is found in Luke chapter 4. As was his custom, Jesus goes to his hometown synagogue on the Sabbath. He has likely attended this synagogue hundreds of times in his life, experiencing Judaism up close and personal with members of his family and his local community. Well, he obviously needed the assembly, a good indication that I do too, even if it is sometimes a hassle to go or I find myself at odds with what is taught or who is teaching it. The Jesus habit of immersing himself in community and the Word should be my habit as well. The public reading of Scripture remains a bulwark of Judaism, a sort of fortress against the outside world. Christianity has incorporated this practice, though many of us were raised in iterations where the Scriptures only made an appearance at the beginning of a sermon and was promptly abandoned in favor of stories and illustrations. I fear that there's a famine for the hearing of the Word in most of our churches, and the long-term effects of this will be far worse than a lack of knowing Scripture. Even with the consistent reading of the Scriptures, there's still a high possibility of misinterpretation, as this Jesus story will show us. But misinterpretation, or the possibility of such, is no excuse to abandon what lies within. Jesus is the public reader on this particular Sabbath, And whether his reading is assigned or chosen by him is unclear. We do know that he reads from what we call Isaiah 61.1, the famous Spirit of the Lord is upon me passage. Of course, it is famous because Jesus reads it, but it is a curious passage to say the least. Isaiah says it as if it is him that the Spirit of the Lord is upon, though what comes afterwards points to someone else. When Jesus reads it, he finishes with, Today is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing, meaning that he has placed himself as the object of the text. Imagine the shock waves that went through that room. It's easy to overlook this because we follow Jesus as the one to whom that passage refers, but that room can only see Jesus as Joseph and Mary's son. They know him, and as is human custom, anyone we know cannot be all that special. So what exactly does Jesus assign to himself in this reading? Well, he declares himself to be the anointed one, a figure that Judaism has anticipated for centuries. This very fact is why we call him Christ or Christos, the anointed one. This means that he is literally smeared over by the Spirit of God and he's called for a purpose. Anointing is what was done to kings to install them as God's chosen leader. If Jesus is the anointed one, then everything else flows from him. I don't want to spend too much time with the individual components of what Jesus was anointed to do, as 
We've spent considerable time on these during recent podcasts. I'll just say that Jesus laid out his mission and the broadest definition of what he came to do in any single passage right here. That alone makes those verses worth studying. And after the crowd looks on in amazement, and they talk themselves out of believing in him by reminding themselves of his parentage, Jesus drops the interesting phrase, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. This is interesting because we don't know where he got that proverb, as this is its first appearance in print, but even more interesting is that he uses it at all. That phrase typically means that someone should take care of themselves before taking care of others. Jesus will use a derivative of it later in his ministry when he says that before you pull the speck from your neighbor's eye, you should pull the plank from your own eye. Is Jesus referring to some problem that he has? Is he assuming they won't believe in him as a healer if he can't even fix himself? I don't think so. Based upon his follow-up statement, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum, to which he responds to himself, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. And here is the answer to this entire query. Jesus knows that the crowd expects him to fix the issues of his own city, but they've shown no faith in him to do so. Thus, like Elijah and Elisha before him, he'll be forced to turn outward to find a receptive audience. It isn't that the physician doesn't want to take care of his own house, but that his house wants nothing to do with him. Also, Jesus has just declared the acceptable year of the Lord, another way of pronouncing Jubilee. Jubilee was the Jewish year of canceled debt and the return of all property. It occurred every 50 years or about once a generation, and it was held only within the confines of Israel and applied only to the people of God. The Jubilee year was evidence of the exceptional quality of the chosen people of God. Beginning in verse 25, Jesus expands the borders of who can receive the goodness of God by reminding his audience of two stories within their own history. He begins with the prophet Elijah, the apex prophet of Israel's story. He reminds them of the three-and-a-half-year famine that ravaged Israel and how Elijah did not help a widow within Israel, but rather a woman in the village of Zarephath in Sidon, Gentile territory. He then includes the story of Elisha and Naaman the Syrian. Elisha instructed him to dip seven times in the Jordan to receive his healing. Jesus points out that there were plenty of lepers in Israel, but none of them received their healing. These two stories of provision and healing for Gentiles are told within a twofold context. First, it's time for Jubilee when God shows his goodness to his people. Second, The people have a long history of rejecting the goodness in front of them, so God often turns outward to someone else. Within this context, Jesus is declaring that the Jubilee has arrived and the least deserving are about to be the most blessed. This theme continues within the ministry of Jesus, where the first is last, the last is first, the least gets into the kingdom, and the greatest are the least of all. This inverted definition of the kingdom of God was no more popular then than it is now, causing the audience to be filled with rage and to drive him to the edge of town with the intent to kill. We surely would do better, right? I mean, we would hear what Jesus had to say and just repent 
Admit we're wrong and ask him to change our hearts. But don't be so sure. Never in my lifetime have I seen it less popular in the American church to preach the teachings of Jesus. If you stay in the Sermon on the Mount too long, someone will tell you that you're preaching the wrong covenant or that you need to go read the Apostle Paul because he rounded out what Jesus left undone. Jesus is just too simple, too naive, too inclusive? Or maybe he's too exclusive. Those who thought they were in find that maybe they are the ones on the outside looking in. I've been stunned at the response of Christians who find that what they are uneasy about are actually the words of Jesus. And rather than repent when they learn this, they declare, well, that won't work today. Newsflash. Through the system of the world, Jesus' words would not work then either. It's not a timing problem. It's a system or a kingdom problem. What Jesus proposes is the constitution of the kingdom of God. Another way of saying, where I come from, here is how we do it. It looks like it won't work because our system runs on a different kind of fuel. Rather than forgiveness, we run on vengeance. Rather than love, we run on hate. Rather than acceptance by grace, we run on approval by merit. So, Jesus declares that Jubilee will no longer end at the edge of their definition of the people of God, but will include widows in Sidon and leprous generals from Syria. Such inclusion took the crowd from awe to anger in an instant, and Jesus could do no more great works within his hometown. If the acceptable year of the Lord was inaugurated in Christ, and he never changes, then the gospel extends out to and includes those whom we may think less than worthy. This is the scandal of the gospel of grace. Those who work all day are paid the same as those who work only an hour. It's not a testament to the unfair nature of God's love and kindness, but to the fact that love and kindness is God's prerogative and not ours. From here, Jesus returns to Capernaum to do great works, never able to give to Nazareth what he so desperately wants to. Like Jerusalem on the eve of his crucifixion, when he cries over it and bemoans how they've missed the things that make for peace, Jesus moves on to where he is accepted. I pray we are a depository for his love and grace and that people feel these things as they hear of our Jesus. May we all inventory our presentations of Jesus and our acceptance or rejection of people so that we don't slip from awe to anger over just how good and loving he really is. I am convinced of the love of the Father put on display in Jesus. May that love shine through me. I know you pray the same for you. Father, have grace and mercy on us all. Grace to you.